be able to gather here each week, to gather here freely, to gather here not worrying about violence or persecution that might come our way. And I pray that as we do that this morning, as we come here and pray and read God's word together and take communion, that we can do that with a pure heart, uh, with minds that are clear and eyes that are focused on Christ throughout this next 30 minutes or so. And as we leave here today, I pray that we won't just leave here thinking that, all right, that was a great time of spiritual refreshment and great spiritual recharging. That's very important. But I also pray that we leave here encouraged and inspired to go out to the mission fields that God has put us in, whether it's school or work or neighborhoods or wherever it is that God has sent you. So I pray that we can do that. But I am glad that we have the opportunity to get together. Now, last week we talked about the seventh commandment because we are in our Ten Commandments series. And if you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, the seventh commandment was you shall not commit adultery. And we talked about the importance of having a biblical understanding of both marriage and sex. And we talked about how God created marriage. It was something from the very beginning that was meant to be a covenant between one man and one woman for life. That's simply what marriage is, according to the book of Genesis, according to how creation is made. And then we talked about how Paul showed us that marriage is meant to be more than just that base man-woman relationship. It's meant to be a giving up of the self, where two spouses who love one another, who have made a commitment to one another, are consistently putting the other's interests ahead of their own, no matter what kind of sacrifices that might mean for them. And how these two spouses are meant to be encouraging one another and building one another up and discipling one another, that they might know Christ a little bit better every single day through their marriage. But we also talked about how sex is not just some physical act. It's not just something that is done for pleasure or enjoyment or to make a relationship grow a little bit closer. It is meant to happen in the covenant of marriage because there is a spiritual reality to sex. It is two flesh becoming one. There is a bond that is formed that should not be broken. And adultery is a breach of that covenant. It seems to really trivialize what marriage and sex are really all about according to God's design. It is a breaking of that covenant. Therefore, God says you shall not commit adultery because it won't be good for you. It won't be good for your marriages. It won't be good for this new nation that I'm trying to form now that you're out of slavery in Egypt. But also it won't be a good reflection upon my relationship with you because ideally your marriages As my people, they are meant to stick out to the world around us, that the world around you might know who I am and what kind of God I am by the way you treat one another, especially that intimate, delicate relationship between husband and wife. And as we talked about, adultery, according to Jesus, is not just as simple as, hey, don't go through with an affair, don't actually do it, but hey, you know, your mind can wander, your eyes can wander a little bit, just don't actually step over the line. Jesus seems to indicate that adultery goes way deeper than that. It's a problem of the heart that every single one of us deals with at some level because we all deal and wrestle with sin. And so the problem of adultery, the problem of sin can only be solved by God's grace. It's not through us trying really hard. It's not through us trying to do things or not do things because they're good habits or because of the cold turkey idea. That's not the idea at all. The problem of the heart that ultimately leads to adultery 
is a problem that God can solve, not us. And that's why he provided Christ. So as followers of Jesus, we are called to be examples of that covenantal love, to stick out in a world around us that is very confused and very misguided about what marriage really is all about and what sex is really all about. And we didn't talk about it last week because you can't include every single biblical text and every single sermon. Sometimes you have to pick and choose what you include and what you don't include. But we think of the story of the woman caught in adultery in the book of John, where a woman comes before Jesus. She's thrown before Jesus by religious leaders. And they say, Jesus, what are you going to do with this woman? She committed adultery. The law says that we should stone her. And Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone because grace can even be shown to the adulterer. That's how great God's grace is. And the Ten Commandments have shown us that God's grace shines even brighter. And what Christ has done for us shines even brighter when we realize just exactly where we are. So that brings us to the Eighth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. That's the verse that we often look at for this commandment. There's the Deuteronomy 5 passage as well. But the Eighth Commandment says, You shall not steal. Now, with adultery, we talked about how that's an example of how something that was created to be good and God-honoring and beautiful can be tainted by sin. Sex is meant to be a good, God-honoring thing, and yet our sin often leads us to abuse this gift that God has given us. And the problem of stealing, the Eighth Commandment, seems to be a similar example. Because material possessions can be a wonderful, good thing. They can be an incredible blessing. And every single one of us here, we are blessed to have what we do. If you're sitting in this room this morning, you're more blessed than a high majority of the rest of the world. That is a wonderful thing to have. However, material possessions can also bring out the worst in us. We can end up depending upon them more than we depend upon God for safety and security. We can let our material possessions come, become an idol to us and worship them ahead of worshiping the only God who is worthy of worship. But then on top of that, if we let our material possessions become that idol, then all of a sudden we get into the eighth commandment. We want more and more of the stuff that we have, even to the point of sometimes stealing, dishonoring God so that we can have more of the thing that God gave us in the first place. So that brings us to the Eighth Commandment. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. So if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of our Bibles. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's on page 750. So Luke chapter 19, if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk. I know that's not the primary commandment passage, but we're going to see how this ties back to stealing. But before we actually get into this passage, before we talk a little bit more about what stealing really is and what this commandment is all getting at, Let's pray together, and then we'll get moving. Father, we're grateful that we get to come into your presence, that we have this privilege to be in your presence. And God, we know that every single one of us is less than perfect. Even if we know you, God, we know that we don't become perfect people as soon as we follow your son. But you still accept us as sons and as daughters because of what Jesus did for us. And for that, that is, that is a humbling experience and a humbling thing to realize. And so, God, I pray that as we approach your word today, that we will be humble, that we'll let you speak where you need to speak, whatever that means for us, whatever we need to hear, God. 
I pray that you will say that through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And God, this has been kind of a crazy week around the world with all the chaos that seems to be happening overseas. God, we know that you're in control. We know that you are ruling. We know that you are reigning. And so we lift up everything that occurs around us to you. And we trust that you can take horrible tragedies and make something glorifying come out of them. And we don't understand how that works, but that's just how your power is. And so, God, I pray as we worship you this morning, as we read your word, we'll remember that. And we'll remember just how great you really are and that you deserve all the honor and all the praise. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as we talked about with these commandments, if you were to walk up to a person on the street and say, hey, name the Ten Commandments, there are some that you might hear and some that you might not hear. For example, you might not hear the commandments of you shall keep the Sabbath because that one's not so mainstream. That's one that most people don't really think of when they think Ten Commandments. You may not hear ones like you shall not bear false witness. That's what's coming next week as we'll look at the Ninth Commandment. But even for people who don't know Christ, even for people who haven't been raised in church, many people could probably name you shall not steal, you shall not murder. This is one of the big ones that people tend to agree on, that people tend to see eye to eye on. There are very few people that would advocate for a society where stealing was completely acceptable. This one's pretty well known. And it's a problem that we deal with every single day in the world around us. Now, I have spent some time in a small town when we lived in Batesville. It was the kind of town where people left their car keys in their car when they went into Kroger for an hour. And they didn't worry about their car being stolen. People didn't have exterior lighting on their house because they figured, you know what? Nobody's going to be on my property. No one's going to try to steal anything of mine. I can leave my door unlocked. It's no big deal. And most of the time, they were right. However, we also know that in most places, that's just not realistic. Stealing happens all the time. It happens all around us, whether we realize it or not. And can you imagine a world where stealing was legally acceptable? We have laws, we have rules in place to try and keep this aspect of ownership under control. But imagine a world where even those things didn't exist, those laws, those regulations. That would be a world of chaos, a world of fear, a world of anarchy, a world of permanent mistrust. You see pictures on the news when a natural disaster comes through a major city and all of the chaos that ensues. It almost seems like society breaks down a little bit when a hurricane or a tornado comes through and people are looting stores and they're robbing one another and crazy, crazy things happen. Imagine a world where that was the reality all the time. We would see survival of the fittest at its finest. We would see those who are physically stronger taking advantage of those who are weaker, whether they were children, whether they were the disabled, physically or mentally disabled, whether they were elderly people. Those people wouldn't stand a chance where stealing was okay, where stealing was acceptable. And no society would ever flourish under those conditions the way God wants his people to flourish, the way God wants his nation to flourish as they go out of Israel. And that's a big reason why scripture endorses the idea of ownership, the concept of ownership, the idea that I have something that is mine. It's not yours. Therefore, I get to keep it and you can't just take it from me. 
We can work something out to where I'll let you borrow it. We can work something out to where I may sell it to you for the right price. But you can't just take my stuff because that would lead to a permanent state of chaos and a permanent state of mistrust. But at the same time, for us as followers of Jesus, for us as God's people, we are called to view ownership in a different way than some people might view ownership. As we have these material possessions that we get as we accumulate over the years, we're called to always view them as a blessing from God, a gift from God that we don't deserve, no matter how hard we worked for them. We are called to view them as gifts. And these material possessions that we have, that we protect from those who might steal them, we're called to use them not just for our benefit, not just for our pleasure or enjoyment, but so that we can serve other people. We take the things that God gives us and we use them to build into his kingdom, to contribute to his mission in the world around us. And we respect the ownership of other people. We don't take their possessions because we believe that God has instituted this idea of ownership and we need to respect that. And that brings glory to God when God's people respect these types of laws. Ownership is important, but this commandment doesn't just refer to the idea of taking something that isn't mine. There may be a little bit more to it. There may be more that this commandment is saying. Now, as we hear stealing, sometimes we picture a bank robbery. We picture someone with a mask on and they come in and they have a gun and they're angry and they're yelling. And that's what we have in mind. But this commandment seems to be referring a little bit more to the idea of secrecy. Don't imagine some big, violent, obnoxious, light-of-day robbery, but when you read this, think more about the sneaky, deceptive, behind-the-scenes, a little bit shady, a little bit questionable, kind of in the gray area type of stealing. That seems to be the main issue that this commandment is looking at. Thomas Aquinas read this commandment as injuring our neighbor and taking his goods. That's the way he viewed this commandment, injuring our neighbor and taking his goods. And Thomas Aquinas is on to something there because he realizes that stealing isn't just about taking something that isn't yours. If you take something that isn't yours and then that hurts the person's ability to survive, ability to take care of themselves, you didn't just take their thing, their possession You've taken their dignity. You've taken their personhood. You've said that your desire to have that thing of theirs is more important than their ownership or maybe even more important than their ability to survive, their ability to take care of themselves. Stealing goes deeper than just the thing that is being taken. Martin Luther looked at this commandment and said, stealing is acquiring any property by unjust means. I really like the way he views that, acquiring any property by unjust means. Because as you think about that definition, that expands things a little bit. It's not just about blatantly stealing something that isn't yours, taking an item that doesn't belong to you and making it your own. Martin Luther seems to expand the umbrella a little bit of what might be stealing and what might not be stealing. One more quote from a guy named J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer writes, It is not God's will for us to have anything that we cannot obtain by honorable means. It is not God's will for us to have anything that we cannot obtain by honorable means. So we've talked about stealing. It's not good for society. 
It's not good for God's people at the base level. No society is going to flourish where that happens. We've talked about how, how stealing is not just taking something that isn't yours. There's a deeper reality to it. And it might be a little bit bigger than we sometimes realize. But the question I want to ask and the question that we've kind of been trying to ask with every single one of these commandments is what would Jesus have to say about this commandment? What would Jesus do if he had to address this idea of stealing? We saw how he addressed adultery, but what's he going to do with stealing? Well, that brings us to Luke chapter 19, that passage we've turned to. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a rich man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So we read this story. We're kind of getting the stage set here a little bit. Zacchaeus lives in Jericho. And at that time, Jericho would have been a pretty good place for Zacchaeus because it was a relatively wealthy area. It was the kind of area where somebody like Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, he could do pretty well. It was a little bit shady at times in Jericho, but Jesus goes through anyway. But not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, which probably means that he oversaw some of the other tax collectors in the city. And as we've read, Zacchaeus is making a pretty good living for himself. It says that he's rich. This chief tax collector thing, that's paid off pretty well. But what Zacchaeus has in wealth, he lacks in height. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So Zacchaeus decides to climb up into a tree to see Jesus. So he gets up in the tree, and he's looking to see past the crowd, these people who are taller than him, And he sees Jesus. He's anxious to hear what this guy is all about. Maybe he's heard a little bit about him. Maybe he's heard the fuss. Maybe he saw the crowd and decided, you know what? I can spare a few minutes to kind of see what people are all worked up about. So he does just that. Pick back up in verse 5 as we continue the story. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Mm, How dare he? Zacchaeus is thrilled when Jesus wants to spend the day at his house. Jesus kind of invites himself over here when you really think about it. In our culture, we'd be offended if Jesus just invited himself over. But Zacchaeus views it as an honor. He views it as a privilege. So he receives him joyfully. But the people around Zacchaeus really aren't very happy. They couldn't believe that Jesus would dare be in the presence of this chief tax collector. It's scandalous. It's offensive. They're maybe a little bit jealous that he would choose Zacchaeus of all people to spend time with because of what he's done. We've talked about tax collectors before. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors if they were Jewish people because they were viewed as taking the side of Rome the people who are oppressing them, the people who God wants to defeat one day. And so if you were a Jewish person, you went to work for Rome, you were burning some bridges. You were really making some people angry. You were committing the worst type of treachery that you could imagine. Tax collectors were known for shady business practices, whether it was 
Things like extortion, whether it were things like blackmail, whatever you want to call it, they were known for not being the most upstanding, honest guys in the world. But then on top of that, tax collectors were often viewed as ceremonially or spiritually unclean because they're spending all that time with non-Jewish people. They're spending time with people who aren't like us, people who don't worship God. And so that's the kind of person that I really don't want to be around, is what the crowd is thinking. But Jesus invites himself over. Jesus spends time with Zacchaeus, this dirty tax collector. In short, Zacchaeus, he was a thief. He acquired property by unjust means. Whether it was through charging people too much, whether it was through skimming a little bit off the top for himself, whether it was through holding people hostage through the amount that they owe on taxes, Zacchaeus, he fits the bill of a thief. Zacchaeus was, until two weeks ago, the LeBron James of tax collectors. LeBron James, it's one thing if you leave your hometown, it's one thing if you betray the people who know you best, but if you do that, and then you go and you do really, really well, that makes the sting even worse. Zacchaeus has done that. He's betrayed his people. And not only that, he's done it pretty well. He's making a good living for himself. And so the bridges burn that much more. And the anger and the jealousy and the bitterness is even stronger through Zacchaeus's success. But as you look at someone like Zacchaeus, I have to ask the question, why would Zacchaeus become a tax collector? Why would he willingly become a person who's viewed as a thief, who's viewed as a swindler, swindler, who is viewed as breaking this eighth commandment of stealing, of acquiring property by unjust means? If he knew he was going to be so hated, if he knew that he was burning that many bridges, why would he willingly subject himself to this? Well, maybe it was competition. Maybe Zacchaeus' neighbors got a new pool and he felt like he had to keep up. And so he went and got a job where he could make a lot of money, even if it meant giving up his principles, even if it meant acquiring that pool by unjust means. He had to keep up with the Joneses, although I doubt there were a whole lot of Joneses in Israel at that time. Maybe Zacchaeus was a little bit lazy. Maybe he had a sense of entitlement. He grew up in a wealthy family and he didn't feel like he should have to work hard for the stuff that he wanted. And so he went into a practice that was a little bit shady, a little bit easy for him to accumulate wealth, even though he didn't really have to earn it the good, honest way. Maybe Zacchaeus was just greedy. He always wanted more. He couldn't get enough of the material possessions. He couldn't get enough of the wealth. And so he would do whatever he had to do to acquire that wealth. Maybe Zacchaeus was looking for fulfillment. Maybe he's a little bit more of a sympathetic figure than we might realize. Maybe he's had stuff and he's had wealth and he's accumulated things, but he's still looking for something. And when Jesus comes into town, he thinks, maybe this is what I'm looking for after all. Maybe Zacchaeus was desperate. We don't know a whole lot about him, but maybe he had a family. Maybe he felt like the only way he could provide for his family or those people who relied on him for care was if he made money regardless of how he got it. So he decided to be a tax collector. And if that's dishonorable, well, if my kids are fed, then so be it. Maybe that was the attitude Zacchaeus had. Maybe Zacchaeus had some kind of habit that he was feeding. And so the only way he could manage that habit and keep that habit up was through stealing. 
The truth is, we don't know why Zacchaeus became a thief. It could have been one of those motivations. It could have been a combination of those motivations. And I think the same could probably be said for those who steal today. It could be any one of those things. But nonetheless, Zacchaeus is a thief. He's a swindler. He's not the most upstanding guy in the world. And the question we naturally come to is, okay, well, what's Jesus going to say to this guy? Jesus knew his name before he ever even really met Zacchaeus. So surely Jesus knows what's really happening here and the kind of guy that Zacchaeus is. What's Jesus going to say to him? Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come into this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So how does Jesus handle this guy, Zacchaeus, this dirty No good guy. Well, number one, he shows Zacchaeus value the way other people wouldn't have shown him value. People viewed him as a pariah. They viewed him as an outcast through what he had done. But Jesus seems to treat Zacchaeus like a fellow human being in spite of his sin, in spite of his mistakes, in spite of all the things that he's done wrong. Jesus embraces him. Jesus shows him care. Jesus shows him compassion. He gives him fellowship which is something a lot of other people wouldn't have done. And then when they get back to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus starts spilling his guts out to Jesus. He is just totally open about all the things that he's done wrong. And that makes me ask the question, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? We kind of have this fast forwarding of the story. One minute, Jesus is inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, and then the next minute, they're in the house, and Zacchaeus is just totally opening up about everything. So what did Jesus say? Did he forcefully call out Zacchaeus on his sin? Did he kind of gently, maybe a little compassionately, show Zacchaeus the error of his ways? Did Jesus say anything at all? The truth is that we don't know. We don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. But all we know is that Zacchaeus repents of his sin. And he agrees to right the wrongs that he has committed over the years through his stealing. And if you think about that commitment that Zacchaeus makes, it's a pretty big commitment. Take my wealth and immediately divide it by two, because half of what I give, I give to the poor. So his wealth is already cut in half. And then he says, whatever I've gained through wronging people, I'm going to return it to them fourfold, four times as much as I stole from them or as I swindled from them. If you do math, at the rate that Zacchaeus is going, he's not going to be rich for much longer. If this was the main source of his wealth, why would Zacchaeus, this guy who risked life and limb, this guy who burned tons of bridges to gain more and more stuff, even if it meant through dishonorable means, why would he all of a sudden just give it up? Just return all of it. Just throw it all away after all that hard work. Zacchaeus did it because he found something better. He found something better that only Christ could offer him. You know, it's a nice little story, isn't it? A bad guy turns good. All the people who were hurt end up getting more in return than they had before. Salvation comes to Zacchaeus' house. 
This is proof that when Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost, I really meant it because I sought out Zacchaeus and I have now saved him. It's a great story. But what does it mean for us? Several people have asked me, you know, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about stealing because how many of us are really thieves? And there's some truth to that. I really doubt people in here make a regular practice of stealing something that isn't theirs. If you have, then you've hid it from me because none of my stuff is missing as far as I know. So good job for that. Continue preying on one another as long as you don't prey on me. But what's it mean for us? Because we're not thieves. We don't really steal. Well, think back to that Martin Luther definition. Acquiring any property by unjust means. With that in mind, are we guilty of stealing? When I was in high school and college, I worked at Kroger for five years in the dairy department. And we used to have to clock in at the front of the store with a little system where we'd put in a code and then we'd put our thumbprint on a scanner. And that's how we clocked in. And that would keep track of what time we got there and how much we got paid for and all that stuff. But one day we got a new clock in system and it didn't take long for my friends and I to discover some holes in the system. And the hole that we discovered was that it rounded by seven minute increments. So if you were scheduled to work at one, you could clock in at 106 and still get paid as if you were there at one. And if you were scheduled to work until nine, if you waited until 853 to clock out, then you got paid as if you worked until nine. And there were holes with the brake system as well. And so if you really knew how to work the system, by the time a full day was done, you could get paid for 30, 40 minutes of time that you didn't work. And every single one of us, we knew that. And we worked that system. So were we guilty of stealing? If it's acquiring property by unjust means, acquiring pay for work that we didn't do? Yeah, we were guilty of stealing. Think about a more large-scale example, a more international example. Think of things like the blood diamond industry or even sweatshops. People are being put through pain. People are being put in incredibly unjust and dangerous work environments so that the price of diamonds can remain reasonable or the price of clothes can remain reasonable. But we turn a blind eye to it. Property is being acquired by unjust means, even if we aren't the ones directly doing it. Indirectly, we seem to be condoning it with the way we use our finances. This issue of stealing may be a little bit deeper than we all realized. Think about things like insider trading behind the scenes, not violent, not out front, not in the light of day type stuff. But nonetheless, it's acquiring property by unjust means. Think about cheating those that we may employ or those that we may oversee if we're not paying a, paying a fair wage for the work that they're doing and the commitment that they're making because we can somehow save a little bit of cost on our end. Is that stealing? It may go a little bit deeper and it may be a little bit murkier than we often think. So if we are guilty of stealing, if we've committed one of those things, if we've acquired property by unjust means. What do we do? How do we respond? What comes next? Well, we respond in the same way that Zacchaeus did. As we look at Zacchaeus, what does he do? He repents of his sin. He agrees to right the wrongs that he had committed, whatever that took. And in fact, he even does more than just righting the wrongs that he had committed. 
And we strive to live lives of justice and strive to live lives of honesty as we move forward. But as important as those things are, and those things matter, more than anything, the key is that we discover what Zacchaeus discovered. And that's the fact that there's only one treasure worth having. And that is the treasure that Jesus offers Zacchaeus. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says there, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea that Jesus seems to be getting at is that the treasure that is worth having, the treasure that comes from him, Salvation through God's grace. It's a gift. It's not something that you and I could steal, even if we wanted to, because God gives it to those who place their trust in Christ. It's a gift that can't be stolen from us, because it is in God's hands, and God has given it to us, and God is in control. But not only that, it can't be stolen from us because we freely share it with anyone who hasn't received that gift with anyone who hasn't experienced that grace. We share it with those around us because it is that worth having. And we refuse to steal anymore because there's nothing else worth stealing. We already have the one thing that really matters, and that's the salvation that Zacchaeus has experienced. And it's the salvation that we share with other people. And it's the salvation that I pray every single one of us has this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is a deep topic that might go a little bit farther than we sometimes realize, might not be as simple as we sometimes realize, and we may even be a little bit more guilty than we sometimes realize. But God, as we've seen through these commandments, we see a little bit of who your character, we see a little bit about who you are, And what's important to you and what's called to be important to us. And I pray that as we move forward this morning, that we will realize there's only one thing worth having. And it's something that we can't steal. It's something that can't be stolen from us. It's something that you provide. And God, we are grateful for that. We're grateful for the fact that even someone like Zacchaeus, who we often look at and say, you know, I'm just glad I'm not as bad as that guy. Zacchaeus can receive this salvation because your grace is that powerful. And God, we can receive that salvation too. And it's humbling. God, for those of us who have already received it, I pray that as we move forward, we live lives that reflect that through the treatment of other people, through the way that we are honest in our dealings, through the way that we strive to live lives of integrity with how we treat other people and how we treat our possessions. God, we're grateful for what your son has done for us. This wouldn't have any point. We would be hopeless if not for what happened on the cross, for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. And we're grateful for that. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we close out our service today, we're going to sing one more song, but there's one more passage I want to look to really, really, really briefly. It's Luke chapter 23, verses 42 
and 43. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's on the edge of death. He is hung between two criminals. And tradition has it that this criminal, one of the criminals, was a thief. And one of the criminals start mocking Jesus. He starts slandering Jesus and giving Jesus a hard time the way the rest of the witnesses pretty much were. But then one thief speaks up and we read in that passage, Luke 23, 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you haven't received that gift that gift of salvation, that gift of forgiveness, that gift of mercy. I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to discuss whatever kind of questions or concerns that you may have and really show you that even a thief is eligible for the grace of God because it isn't through anything that we do. There are no prerequisites to meet. It's just you throwing yourself at the foot of the cross the way that thief did, even in the last few hours of his life. So talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to talk to you, happy to pray with you as well.